From the smallest room in New York City comes a show that gives you a reason to live. I, w- I would guess that it's hard to make new friends if, if you're Andy No. Yes, Pat, that's an accurate statement, especially if you're living in a city like Portland. Portland's kind of like Brooklyn, if Brooklyn had its own isolated place, which I guess it kind of does, but <laughs> um, th- there's nowhere really to go around Portland to leave, you know, you. Whereas I know New York City is big enough that you can leave Brooklyn and kind of get away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm, I would describe myself as a persona non grata there. It's just Portland's a political monoculture, that's how I describe it. A political monoculture. Oh, yeah. So. Um, like in the same sense that China is, is a political monoculture, I guess. Officially, yes. <laughs> officially. Um, I've gained infamy for my criticism of Portland, but I'll start with the nice things about it. Uh, you know, with many progressive cities, you uh, it attracts artists and creative people, and it's a foodie town, it's beautiful, it's green. Uh, these are many things that have made Portland a wonderful place for people to, to move to, to live in, to commute, to work. Uh, at the same time, I would say maybe in the past decade, there's been a a toxic subculture that was brewing in the politics that spilled over into the mainstream. And I'm, I'm thinking of this grievance slash intersectionality slash social justice worldview. And now it's come to a point where Portland, um, to the rest of the world, seems like a a dystopia in that over and over we're having businesses mobbed, people chased out of town, sometimes literally, I'm thinking of the burrito food cart owners, you're having, um, like businesses are easy to shame, then on top of that you're having these instances, recurring instances, like a Groundhog Day film of ritualized violence on the streets by Antifa. Yeah. It is. It that's exactly the impression I got, and I don't even know about the burrito cart uh, owners. What what happened with them? So in 2017, this actually got a quite a lot of ridicule uh, and coverage internationally. There were two white women who opened a burrito food cart. They were accused of cultural appropriation because they were inspired to open the food cart after I think a trip to Mexico or something, and they were watching people make tortillas. And people were accusing them of stealing, you know, recipes from people of color. So, you know, it just became an easy target, right? Like two young white women, they're not threatening in any way. And they just, not only was their business like mobbed online, they were, they actually received death threats and they just went into hiding. Like till to, to this day, I'm not sure if we know where those women went, like the business shut down and then I think they left town. Um, there was that. Well, that, that is the smart move. I mean, there's, there's nothing, I mean, why stay and fight if you cannot, I'm sure it was going to be difficult to make a living at that point, but stealing recipes, that's mild to attract the ire of a politically minded group. At that point, it starts to feel like more as if these people are, they have a very personal drive to do violence. And I guess maybe that when there's a lot of anger swirling around in a place and nowhere for it to go, eventually it comes out on people who are just making burritos. Yeah. Even before that, there was a restaurant that was set to open uh, called Saffron Colonial. So it was meant to feature 
recipes from the historical British Empire. And because, uh, you know, <laughs> colonialism is such a sensitive topic, people interpreted that restaurant's theme as a glorification of Western colonialism. It seems a little out of step. So she also got mobbed. They had to end up changing the restaurant's name and its theme and all that. Over and over, last year, there was a bakery that fired all its employees because they didn't serve a black woman who came in after it closed. And she spun that event as a racist um, event of racism. So this is sort of the context that sets like the political violence on the streets. It's like sodomizing. Um, there's a lot of support for Antifa in Portland, not necessarily for the brutal street violence, but the so-called like by any means necessary scorched earth, uh, destruction of your opponents. That's pretty crazy. Yes, you know, it's <laughs> that they've that that a large group of people has made this decision, and and the results are clearly bad, and yet. You know, there's no arrest in your attack. Yeah, so for your listeners who may not be aware, I was the person who was beaten and robbed in a viral video by masked Antifa militants in Portland on the 29th of June. So as of today, that's more than two months ago. There hasn't been a single arrest. Uh, I'm angry, but can't say I'm surprised. Um, I've been assaulted many times before that by Antifa. I am not the first or the last victim. There's been many others, and very few of these Antifa militants really end up getting held accountable. The most is if they riot really badly, they might get arrested and then just charged with a misdemeanor. Mm -hmm. Different story for the Proud Boys here in New York City. They were found guilty, and they, they there could be jail time. You know, three years, maybe nine years. I've heard now they uh, they've singled you out. There was an event. Uh, in Philly. Yeah, so this past weekend, I spoke at the Minds Conference in, in Philadelphia, and that was, you got a lot of media attention, and many of the speakers pulled out shortly before because of threats of violence against the original venue that was supposed to host it, and then the venue got cold feet and canceled. I mean, people were calling in and saying that, you know, this event is having Nazis and alt-right people and all that. And understandably, any business owner um, can easily be cowed, right? Oh, yeah. And they just canceled it. And so um, there was this a journalist who, who came. Uh, she's a contributor to Media Matters. Her name's Talia Levin. She gained some infamy last year because she used to be a staff fact checker for New Yorker magazine. She resigned in disgrace after she falsely accused publicly on Twitter a disabled ICE agent of having a neo-Nazi tattoo. She, she misinterpreted his tattoo, it wasn't neo-Nazi, and she had to resign because of that. Mm. Anyways, you know, the organizers of this event really values transparency and free speech, so they gave her, in good faith, complete press access to, um, to go pretty much wherever. And I think she really abused the goodwill of the organizers because what she ended up doing is going around... Well, first she tweeted out the address of this new venue, and then um, 
And she's quite open about her support of Antifa causes. Just saying that, like, tweeting out the address of an event in any other time would not normally be seen as uh, an act of uh, aggression. The idea that people who would go to this Minds.com, is that right, conference, uh, would have to... Uh, keep it secret it conflicts with the whole idea of free speech it's it's pretty remarkable yeah and then she went around interviewing people who gave her their time long interviews and she took their photos and she found some way to frame them as like a uh, racist or something and some of these people who later saw these tweets because it was being retweeted by some antifa accounts they were distressed and one person particularly wanted her to remove the tweet because he felt like he had been misrepresented um, she falsely claimed that she was, this is a quote, chased out of the casino by racists. Yes. <laughs> um, and, well, the organizers saw her leaving and said bye to her. They said she was just casually leaving with her friend. Um, some re- reporters spoke to the head of security and they said that nobody was chased out. So, mm. um yeah, she she has trouble telling the truth, but you people, know, and people aren't normally chased through a casino without <laughs> without there being a you know an issue. Correct, but you know, it seems like if you if you are shown to be dishonest, but you come from the social justice left or pro antifa side, you can make all these egregious mistakes, and people are willing to forgive you and let you move on. Whereas if you're perceived to be conservative or right wing, such as people perceive me to be mm. i have to be absolutely perfect if when they do make mistakes which is pretty frequently actually very very frequently that you see something that is untrue dishonest misleading inaccurate it's like they see facts as a technicality mm. you know like biden said truth over facts one sad thing as a result of i guess the, the story get, getting big is that it made me um even a a more prime target for Antifa sympathizers and supporters and that I've been continuing to receive threats of violence that have been reported to police, credible threats. And I don't think I can stay there much longer. It's it's one thing to be just generally hated as I was before, but when a large number of people want to see you harmed or want to do harm to you, it's like, you know, I've already been injured seriously once. I cannot risk another type of injury like that. And um, it's unfortunate. I mean, it's, it's, this is a major American city and for my views, I am not safe in it. The acceptance of Antifa has been surprising to me. Yeah, so people, many people just think of Antifa as like, you know, the masked people uh, being, acting like hooligans on the street. And it may seem comical. And in some ways it is, because it's so outrageous, right? The, what they're doing on the streets, like breaking stuff, coming out with weapons, uh, melees. But like the ideology I find really quite scary actually it's it's a coalition movement of anarchists and communists and socialists they're agitating for violent revolution and they perceive these events of violent confrontations on the streets against what they call fascists or nazis or the far right as um taking us step by step closer to this inevitable climax with fascism and they really think they're like part of the vanguard that will be those who fight against fascists and so that's why some of them are willing to go so far as to bring deadly weapons to these type of demonstrations like crowbars or bike locks things like that Mm -hmm. and you know 
we shouldn't be concerned about them achieving their goals of overthrowing the government. That would be silly. What, but what we should be concerned about are other aspects of their ideology and tactics that have been mainstreamed or becoming mainstream, I should say. And I would say that's a victory for them. For example, they basically have a muse in, in Congress now through AOC. What, with what happened in Boston this past weekend, there were Antifa demonstration against straight pride parade and 36 individuals were arrested. Some of them were charged with very serious things, assault and batteries of officers, assault with a dangerous weapon. And AOC, Ayanna Presley, these congresswomen um, helped fundraise the bail money for them. No, so, these were all on one side, all the arrests? I believe so, uh-huh. from what we know. What about this do people find so appealing, do you think? I mean, the, the, the people on the left who aren't, like, fighting in the streets and maybe, uh, or, or in Congress, you know, I mean, these people in the middle, what, what is it that they see in this that is, uh, that makes them want to be part of it? You know, if I was to just speculate, I don't think it's necessarily a coincidence that where these movements have gained a foothold in the U.S. are also in cities that are extremely secular. And I'm saying that as a secular person. Portland, for example, is, I believe, one of the most non-religious cities in America. Every person wants meaning and purpose for life. And when the traditional frameworks for that are, are done away with and discarded, you're going to try to seek it through other dogmas, right? And I think because this whole so-called anti-fascist ideology that's tied with social justice and intersectionality adopts certain pseudo-religious uh, language and even practices. So it seems like it, it's, it's appealing particularly to young people uh, looking for meaning. And I mean, it, it kind of offers a lot, right? It offers you a way to sort of redeem yourself, especially if you're a white person who carries white guilt. And you see that a lot in Portland. And I think the demographics of Portland plays a lot into this, by the way. Like, even though, for example, we're in New York City right now, New York City is a largely progressive and left-wing city, you would not see that type of mainstream support for these type of antics here, I don't think, as you do in Portland. Probably not. I don't know. But, yeah, that's an interesting point you make, that there's a vacuum of religious uh, fervor, and this certainly gives them something to believe in. Once you get someone's belief, any facts that they learn don't seem to matter anyway. People tend to choose their beliefs over facts, and that is how we wind up with people who, no matter what they hear, no matter what information they get about sanctuary cities or about you know anything else, it won't change their mind. That, to me, is a dangerous person. Yeah, these people really... Um, I think the first time that I got mobbed, surrounded, this was in November of last year, at a at an Antifa demonstration against a men's rights rally. And, like, I wasn't wearing a mask. I never wear a mask. I want people to see who I am and see that I'm not a threat, Right. But when all these... <laughs> you don't wear... It's because it's customary to not wear masks at all. Right. Well, no mask, no helmet, like no protective gear even. I'm just like making it very obvious. I'm not here to fight, not here to be any of that. Sure. And when these people surrounded me, I was just trying to look them in the face, but in the eyes actually, but I couldn't even do that because in addition to the, the masks that they're wearing, they're also wearing sunglasses. I realized then that it was actually completely futile for me to try to speak with these individuals and let them know, hey, you know, what you think you know about me is actually wrong. I'm not this monster you think I am. And I couldn't because I wasn't speaking to an individual. They were donning this uniform, which was now 
they are now a group. And they are no, you're no longer speaking to an individual. You're speaking to a group on a mission, a mission to intimidate, right? Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's their identity. Yes. So it's easy for people to talk very aggressively online. Mm-hmm. But I find that usually in person, they're not as willing to do that. However, when you're anonymized behind a mask and with a whole bunch of people who look exactly like you, it's almost like online is real life. Yeah, well, it simulates yeah, an internet kind of a, a moment, doesn't it? Yes. If you do leave Portland, would you come to New York? Would you come to, would you go to LA? Or I don't know if there's anything for you there. I'm not sure yet. My time in Portland has come, is coming to an end mm-hmm. for safety reasons, really. What people don't seem to understand about me is that I think Antifa's demonstrations are fine as long as they are done within the law. But the issue is they don't do it lawfully. And in Portland, they have a city where they're able to not just demonstrate unlawfully, but riot and attack citizens in in public. I mean, some of the videos that you may have seen, they're not exaggeration. Like they will literally shut down parts of downtown, direct traffic, and the police just stand away. And I think it, the problems of Portland is because the city has bought into the Black Lives Matter narrative, which is that they, they view police as hand in hand with Klan, as they chant, or ACAB, all cops are bastards. They believe that. And then our mayor, who's up for re-election, who has to answer to this constituency, is also the police commissioner. So you can see these variables that cause Portland to be what it is. Because in other progressive cities, you don't see the police cowing and letting thugs and hooligans take over the streets no. of a major city. But that's what happens in Portland. Our mayor did his level best to radicalize as much of New York City as possible and to mobilize his base. To me, when a mayor comes out and says, look, uh, I know that there's going to be a temptation for you to express a lot of anger. You know, we, we ask you to not be violent. And it just seems to me like that's exactly what's going to happen. It seems like an invitation. Like, I understand your feelings and how you could be violent. It really puts a stamp of approval on it. Well, here's the thing, as I was saying earlier, like Antifa won't win in the revolution, but what they will win in is normalizing political violence. And you're you're seeing mainstream politicians actually express support for certain forms of political violence against people they perceive to be on the right or far right. Unimaginable just a few years ago, as you said. I think so. When it started with that whole meme of Punch and Nazi, I mean, it was kind of universally celebrated. And I think it was because Richard Spencer is an easy person for everybody to dislike. But even then, I was like, wait, I could, you know, we were seeing already how broadly and recklessly Nazi as a label was being used. And if people are celebrating punching a Nazi, I was predicting that many non-Nazis will get injured in the process, as has happened. (laughs) I mean, I don't think there are any Nazis. There are so few Nazis. It's not a viable group. It's nobody that President Trump could have spoken to to get elected. It's not a group that has any political power, no voting power. There's a few thousand people in the Klan. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I'm saying that it's not the problem that they make it out to be. Punch a Nazi is something that, yeah, obviously they say to just uh, excuse them punching whoever and like normalizing like that. And, and this is where I became really shocked with Berkeley, with uh, Milo. And I saw everything happen. I was like, well, that's the end of this. They're not going to put up with this shit. And <laughs> what have they done? You know, I mean, it's, they really have. Yeah. And even before that, if you remember 2015 and 2016, when Trump was holding 
some of his campaign rallies in Chicago, in San Jose. I'm trying to recall what other places. But, you know, liberal cities where the supporters who were coming and trying to leave were getting mobbed, attacked and hit and attacked and police like didn't intervene. And I mean, that was subject of a lawsuit in, in San Jose. You know, certain times in America, in some of these progressive cities, it doesn't look like America. It looks like a developing, unstable society where people <laughs> are taking to the streets to attack people for the views. Unfortunately, um, people are not universally condemning political violence. It's always kind of like, well, you know, I mean, this is what I mean. Like, the Antifa will win when they're able to convince enough of the public that... The, so, some people who hold views that are so that are so odious must be destroyed, literally and metaphorically. They sway public opinion. It's a, it's a bullying thing. It's, I don't think anybody tr- that many people, certainly not the majority of people, truly agree with that. They're dirty tricks people, and you don't want to fuck with dirty tricks people. I don't think there is a Democrat party anymore. I think it really is just you're socialist, you're a communist, or you're not. It seems that way to me. I think it seems that way because the loudest and most influential voices in the Democrat Party are like people in the squad and they have the backing in the media. But if you look at the polling and you see which, for example, which presidential candidate has the highest support, you know, it's more the moderate. We'll see how successful this campaign tactic is to go further and further to the grievance social justice ideology. But don't I, you feel, just as a, as a counterthought, don't you think the refusal to oppose that makes them just a, another part of it, just like a, a more polished and, and out front kind of acceptable part of it? Yes, I think there's, there's that as well. I think because... Well, it's like in Portland, for example, I'll bring it back to to Portland, where we opened with. The mayor himself is a very sort of establishment, center-left type of a Democrat. Ted 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 Wheeler, Wheeler, yeah. However, it's that he has to kowtow to the radicals in the city and the radicals on um, city council. And he's not willing to push back against them. In fact, he starts to adopt their narratives and their language. I'm not sure if he actually really believes it because he, you know, see, he, he recognizes the economic costs on the city when you having people riot. I mean, after the election of Donald Trump in November 2016, this was shortly before Ted Wheeler uh, came into office, but there was rioting in the city that cost a million dollars in damage. And last year when uh, Antifa activists and other and their allies shut down the ICE facility and built this huge encampment next to the ICE building. That ended up costing the city about a million dollars in overtime for police and cleanup. It was like this cost the city a lot of money, but he knows he can't come out critically against them. And that's why to this day, he never ever has been critical of Antifa when he's mm-hmm. been asked directly. As the police commissioner, that seems pretty irresponsible. I agree. But I think that that one little um, anecdote of Portland is kind of emblematic of something larger in the Democrat Party, right? Yeah. That, yeah. It's because uh, you really don't know what he thinks. You know, we know what he's willing to allow. Yes. And that makes it uh, a very, very frightening situation. I'm curious about um, communism. Like, it attacks institutions, and I, I think people aren't as aware of this as they could be. Uh, do you have any observations about that? The way this philosophy, uh, political philosophy, has kind of attacked different institutions maybe people haven't thought about? Well, the whole Antifa project, and by extension, I mean, Antifa is an extreme form, but even 
I would just say the AOC type project. I think it's to what it does is it weakens liberal democracy. For example, um, the tax on the verbal tax on uh, border law enforcement is to really delegitimize even the idea of sovereignty of the nation state. Um, the tax on the verbal and physical tax on law enforcement that have been adopted by much of the Democrat Party, you know, how they demonize police. And then now the tax on the Electoral College. It's like, I view it more as like anti-liberty rather than necess- than like co- communistic. But um, it is coming from a far left worldview. A yeah. lot of it comes back to racism and the threat of being accused of, of, of racism and just how damaging that can be and how you know, the visceral reaction people have to that. Is there a, a true function for Black Lives Matter or are they strictly to leverage a movement? I think the Eric Garner story, in terms of the rage that it produced, has a lot more legitimacy than the Michael Brown one, right? Because Hands Up, Don't Shoot was determined through the evidence to be untrue. This claim that he was shot in the back or whatever, that was untrue. Darren Wilson, the officer that was involved there, had his life destroyed even though he was completely exonerated. The evidence shows uh, through video footage and through through other physical evidence that Michael Brown had committed a strong-arm robbery. And then what he did beat up um, this officer and his hand was close to the gun when it fired. So that seems to suggest that he was trying to take the gun. Uh, with Eric Garner, it's, you know, because that, that moment was captured on on video it was it's much more visceral right to hear somebody say i can't breathe to me that seems like a much more legitimate instance um what's black lives matter like you know we have the data yeah i know you've entered um heather mcdonald who's Ooh. such an expert on these issues i've interviewed her <laughs> <laughs> And we, but we have the data on the number of people who are killed, who are unarmed in America, how many of them are black. And it pours a lot of water on the Black Lives Matter narrative, which is, I mean, according to Black Lives Matter activists that like we are actually witnessing like genocide. They use terms like that. Uh And I don't, I mean, they're not really seeking it doesn't seem like police accountability though. They're working to tear down the legitimacy of police as an institution. That's what they're working towards. And so any story that they can jump on, whether it be true or not, doesn't matter. It's just as long as the victim is black, then you can use the accusations of institutional and systemic racism to to bully other people into supporting that cause. And because most people just follow the headlines and you know the media is very sensitive to race issues, they will give endless favorable coverage to BLM. I find BLM to be a very extremely divisive movement, not just divisive, but dangerous for what it does in terms of taking away morale from officers, uh, making people not want to go into the force. Like Policing is such a necessary component of any functioning state, right? You know, it's important to have discussions about do we have enough checks and balances to keep officers and and those in power accountable for abuses. But like, that's not really what they're looking for. They're looking to 
do away with the whole thing. It's tragic. It really is. I mean, there's been a lot of suicides this past year. They don't really get a fair shake. And I always say that about the police. Let me ask you this. If you were uh, talking to a group of reasonable people who don't necessarily oppose uh, Antifa so strongly, what, what would you say to them? I would plead with them to uphold liberal values. It's illiberal to support any movement that has as part of its core tenets and ideology the belief that you physically confront those who have ideas that you disagree with. And that's at the heart of really what Antifa is. I mean, you know, um, they, there's a lot of overlap with the progressives on the left with Antifa and the ideology, but what Antifa is willing to do is to, to go out in numbers and to attack people, right? That absolutely cannot be normalized, but it is. And they draw morale from the wider public who support them. There's a reason why they're working so hard to try to destroy me because of the reach that I have. They see that I am a, a thorn on their pretty much previously universal almost positive coverage. I mean, I was surprised to see, um, even when mainstream media outlets had covered Antifa's violence before, they would sort of find a way to portray it in a sympathetic light. I mean, what, what we're having is really like a marauding criminal cartel going around certain parts of America and saying, this is our, our whose streets, our streets. You cannot come here. If you do, we're going to attack you. I mean, their goal is anarchy, really, and chaos, and revolution. And, you know, there are parts of the world where people live like that. You can look to Somalia or Libya, like where different factions control different territories. If you go in that you're not supposed to, you, you get killed, or you get beat up, you get attacked or lynched, whatever. I think because the West has, we've had so much prosperity and stability, because um, Antifa is a Western phenomenon, and these young Americans or, or Western Europeans, they think that what's normal for humanity is like order and law. They don't realize everything that we've worked on as civilization to get to this point. So they they don't know that actually the norm really for a lot of the world is, is chaos and anarchy and, and how conflict is resolved is through violence. They want to take us back to sort of these base instincts. Wow, that's a very good summary. Thanks for your time, Andy. I appreciate it. My pleasure. It. Thanks for having me on. And uh, best of luck and stay in touch.